turned it off. There we go. Um, I do not have a regular printed outline for tonight, so bear with me if you will, but uh, we're going to just look at some things in the Scripture. We are uh, uh, in final preparation here for a launch into a verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. And uh, this is something that we have done in the past, but uh, every time I talk about it, some, oh, pastor, can we do that again? So, um, Lord willing, uh, we will start in the next few weeks. But I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. And before we get too far, uh, before we start, I just want to do some preliminary things over the next uh, several Thursday nights, Lord willing. But I want us to just look at verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation tonight. Just one verse here. And I want us to just look at the idea or the basic principle of understanding prophecy. Revelation chapter 1 verse one, verse 3 says, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy... And keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now let's read that one more time. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now, as John is introducing the book of Revelation, he is giving us a promise, a blessing here, And it says that we are to read, we are to hear, and we are to read and hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. It says, for the time is at hand. Now, this book was written about, depending on whose calendar you want to look at, somewhere between 95 and possibly as late as 101 or 2 A.D., somewhere in that time period. That was a long time ago. And uh, if you want a place where this verse that is one of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible, a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, then this book isn't even two days old. Amen? Do you, do you, that is keeping Scripture in scriptural context. Uh, don't go back to the book of Revelation where it says the evening and the morning were the first day and try to turn it into a hundred million year period where evolution could have taken place within the context of the book of, genera- of, of, uh, Reve- of Genesis Try to say Genesis and Revelation at the same time, and that's what you'll get. Uh, That is what we call uh, scriptural extrapolation or stretching the scriptures to try to cover a preconceived idea. God's time period, he said, these things are going to happen. And by the way, when he says, for the time is at hand, the first thing we're going to be introduced to is the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation And I want you to understand, he's always at hand. Amen. Then we have the letters to the churches, and we're not going to get into those tonight as much as I would like to. Uh, But that's the part of the book that we are supposed to keep. Jesus is writing letters to literal churches with specific instructions, things they ought to do. There is much of the book of Revelation that is prophecy. These are things that have not happened yet. They did not happen. They had not happened when John wrote them. And we are still waiting for them to happen. But the Bible says that there is a blessing upon those who will read, who will hear, and will keep. And so when we start looking at prophecy, the first thing we got to do is we got to get CBS Mystery Theater out of our minds, uh, The Twilight Zone, uh, TBN, I just feel like something good is about to happen. 
we just got to get rid of all those things because that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is not some hoodoo voodoo thing that's going to come and, and uh, you turn on the television and you'll get these guys and they'll be there and says, Oh, I'm receiving a prophecy. Somebody here has a headache and, and I'm going to cure it. And yes, I'm being a little sarcastic. But you get 3,000 people in an auditorium and there's somebody there that's going to have something, let me tell you. And you're going to find, oh, he was speaking right to me. Listen, that's not prophecy. Prophecy, biblical prophecy, is something that is written down in Scripture. Now, I want us to just review, and I'll have this printed out for you as we get into the study of the book of Revelation, so don't worry if you don't get it all. But just some simple laws of biblical understanding. When you want to understand something in your Bible, uh, and we've been over these before, and if it's not new to you, uh, please uh, just get it one more time and don't be upset because we need to review these things from time to time. One is, we, I call it the law of first mention. When God wants you to understand something, if you want to understand a biblical thought, an idea, a principle, a word in the scripture, go to the place where it is first mentioned. Many times, God will explain that concept, that idea, when it is first mentioned. And we could use several different examples of this. But what we will do in just a few moments is we're going to go and apply this law to studying prophecy. We're going to go to the first place that the word prophet is mentioned in the Bible. And we're going to see that God's going to explain some things to us if we'll put in the time to understand what he is doing. The second one is one you hear me say every day. I hope you never get tired of hearing me say the Bible explains the Bible. You want a commentary. I mean, and uh, please don't get mad at me. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but if you want to know the world's best commentary on the Bible, God gave you a book to help you understand the Bible. It's called the Bible. Uh, if you want the world's best book on how to train and raise your children, it's already here. If you want to know how to solve personal problems and family disputes and get along with those wicked, horrible people at work, uh, it's right here. There is no book you need to help you live life than this one right here. Now somebody says, I've been in your office, Pastor. you got lots of books. Yes, but I don't use those books like I use this book. In fact, uh, when, when I am studying my Bible, I don't go to the commentaries and the dictionaries and all of those things first. I go to the Bible first. And I keep reading and rereading and studying and, and chasing that passage through the Scripture. And then I'll go open up the commentaries and usually have a pretty good laugh. Because people get some really strange ideas. But you know what? When you find something that the Bible says, you are going to find it echoed because the Bible is not of any private interpretation. That's the book of Peter tells us that. If you're the only person in the history of the world smart enough to figure this out, guess what? You're wrong. That's all there is to it. And that's why we reject many of the modern, quote-unquote, understandings of things because we'll have one person, he'll get it, and he'll, he'll understand the Bible a certain way, and he'll get people following him. Uh, the reason they call them Lutherans is because of a fellow named Luther. He developed a unique understanding of Scripture a group of disciples were gathered to him. They followed him. And if you want to understand the Bible according to Martin Luther and his followers, you would then become a Lutheran. 
And we could go through the different ones if you want to follow the understanding. And, and um, uh, just a, an extreme example is a fellow named Joseph Smith came up with a whole new understanding of what he claimed was the Bible. But if he was understanding the Bible, why did he have to write two other books that completely contradicted everything in the Scripture? Well, as I said, an extreme example, this isn't Scripture at all. Everything we need is right here. If you want to understand something, chase it through the Bible. And the Bible will explain itself. There are some words that are used different ways in different passages. We have many words in English that have several different definitions. Do you know that in Hebrew and Greek from which our Bible was translated, they have words that have different definitions just like we do in English? You say, how in the world do you know which definition is to be applied? Well, that's called context. And as you study that word through the scripture, you will see it used different ways. If it's one of those bigger words that has different definitions, you'll be able then to build a contextual uh, apparatus or a categorization process so that you can say this word is used this way in this set of verses, this way in this set of verses. Now I'm looking at a new passage and I'm going to see where it fits so that I can understand. And, and you may be saying, Pastor, that's really good for pastors, but is that what I'm supposed to do? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you really want to understand the scripture? How many of you believe that you ought to depend on me to cut the Scripture apart and make sure that you understand the Bible? Good. No hands are going up. Whew. I don't know what I was going to do. Somebody went, oh, Pastor, please. That's the way the world wants to do things. But, but let me explain something to you. You're not going to just pick up this book and give a cursory glance over a verse, and all of a sudden have a deep and complete understanding of scriptural principle. The only way you're going to learn this book is you're going to have to spend some time in it. How many of you spent some time in this book? It's worth it, isn't it? It is the only way you can know. And one of the things that I challenge uh, here regularly is, is when we teach, and one of the reasons I like to give outlines most of the time when, uh, is so that you can take that outline home and you can double check the verses and the, and the references that are made and make sure that what is being taught, that is your responsibility just as it is my responsibility before I step into this pulpit to make sure I'm teaching what the Bible says, but you must put forth the effort to trace the words through the Scripture. Now, if you want the simplest and easiest way to do that, uh, I should have brought one. Uh, it's called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Now, I think we have them in the, a couple in the bookstore for what? They're less than $20, right? And um, uh, Mr. Strong went through and listed every word in your King James Bible, every place it's found. And so you can look up the word and just follow through the scriptures as it is repeated time and time again. And you will very soon be able to see how a word is used. Now, let me just add something to you, uh, give you something that is a little scary that some preachers do. Uh, it is something that uh, we have never wanted to do here uh, and never tried. There's a book called Young's Analytical Concordance. Now, what Mr. Young did was he went through the basic Greek and Hebrew words from which our English word is translated and often a word will be translated different ways because it has different meanings or different shades of meanings. 
that should be reflected when that translation is made. And so a budding Greek or Hebrew scholar who wants to be one can get this Young's Analytical Concordance and all he has to do is look up the list of English words given for the Hebrew word and then begin to substitute other English words for the one that is used in your Bible and all of a sudden he becomes smarter than all the King James translators, right? No. He may appear to be that way, but you can do that with almost no study and no preparation and no understanding of the original languages and yet sound like you have spent hours and hours laboring over manuscripts of which you couldn't read if your life depended on it. That's not studying the scripture, my friend. We don't substitute words just so that we can get a different understanding. What we want to do is understand the words that are here. The next key point here, no one passage of Scripture will ever violate another passage of Scripture. As we look at the Bible... Number one, look at the first place something is mentioned. Number two, trace that idea, that word, that thought through the scriptures. Number three, understand that when I read this scripture here and it appears to contradict this scripture over here, the problem is not in the words of my Bible. It's not in the text from which those words come from. The problem is in my understanding or my apparent understanding. Let me give you one example. If you've been through discipleship, we've, we use this one often. Go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Just keep your fingers nimble because we're going to look at about three passages of Scripture in very quick succession so we can get through the rest of what I have here tonight. In verse 26, and God said, verse 26 of chapter 1, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now this is God's summation of the creation of mankind. He created one man. He created one woman. The Garden of Eden was a real place. Adam was a real man. Eve was a real woman. Now, let's go to chapter 2 and verse 17. Verse 16, actually. We're going to read 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely what? What's it saying? When are you going to die? In the day that you eat thereof, right? Okay, now, who knows what happened in chapter 3? They ate thereof, did they not? Now go to chapter 5. Verse 3, and Adam lived 130 years. Does that appear to be a contradiction to anyone? You say, Pastor, I know the answer. But on the surface, it said, In the day that ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And here we have Adam living 130 years after he ate of the fruit. Is that not an apparent contradiction in Scripture, I would say that it is. Because God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die here. We have him still alive 130 years later, and he's going to live another 
800 years after this, and you say, you believe that? Yeah, I do. We go to verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Now that is a repeat, Genesis chapter 1, the first verses we read. Verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image. Now, how was Adam created? In the image and likeness of God, yet when Adam had a son, that son was described as in the image and likeness of Adam. Could there be a difference there? Yeah, there is. You see, we are created in the image of God, How many of you have ever heard of this? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Amen? Do you believe that? There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. You're to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How are we created in the image of God? The simplest understanding of that is, is the real you what I see? Is all there is to the human being this flesh and body which walks around and makes noise? No, we know there's something more inside that body because we're different than the animals. And that's one thing evolution can't explain. You know what? You put yourself in a cage with a wild animal and that animal eats you, he's going to feel full. He's not going to be sad. He's not going to be guilty because he hurt somebody who fed him for, for many months and years. The animals do not have a living soul like we do that feels emotion, that is accountable, that makes real decisions when we say, I love you with all of my heart. You say, oh, that's so beautiful. Are you talking about that fist-sized muscle that goes boom, 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 boom? No. You don't want somebody to love you with that. You're saying, I love you with my innermost being, the real me that thinks on the inside. My soul is what loves you. God the Father, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the human body, and the Holy Spirit, the part of God that related to man. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died in that day. That's why Adam's image was different. They died spiritually. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. There is no part of me that can relate to God. That's why when a person gets born again, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of them so that that ability to communicate directly with God can be restored. Amen? And so as we look through the Bible, there are going to be apparent contradictions. Do not let that confuse you. Study your Bible out and you will find out that your Bible is one book from cover to cover. No Bible-believing Christian is afraid of any one verse in this book called the Bible. It's interesting, down through history, different men have been afraid or refused to even copy or translate certain parts of the Bible because they were afraid that the Scriptures would have a bad influence on different people. In fact, that's why for centuries the Roman Catholic Church closed up the Bible and locked it up and made it a mortal sin to read the pages and the words of the Scripture because it might hurt you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us to read it and that you can understand the Bible 
just as well as the preacher can if you'll spend the time in the Bible. Now, let me just make a statement. Um, I've spent 25 years out of Bible college, four years in Bible college, and several years before I went to Bible college, preparing to go to Bible college, studying and reading my Bible, as a pastor, I ought to be a little better than someone who has just gotten saved or just started studying the Bible. And that's the job of the pastor, is to help guide those that are learning into the study of the Scriptures. But you know what? It wouldn't hurt you to be as good at understanding the Scripture as the preacher is. It wouldn't hurt you at all. It would only help our church. Amen? That's what's called spiritual maturity. You never start from a difficult passage trying to understand. You always start from the simple passages and move. By this I mean never contradict or violate a clear passage of Scripture with one that isn't clear. People will go to Hebrews chapter 6 where it has a very long sentence in a very complicated sentence structure talking about those that if they were to fall away cannot be renewed again and people like to go to that passage. See there, Pastor, it talks that you can lose your salvation. Well, we've been over that passage several times and there's no such understanding of that passage if you'll work it in completely, but... Let's start with the simple passages. I give unto them everlasting life, eternal life. Now, if he gives eternal life, then you can't lose it because then it wouldn't be eternal by definition of the words. So let the clear passages understand and help you understand the complicated ones. In Matthew When Jesus is giving prophecy about the end times, he says, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. And people say, See there, you got to work, you got to keep up good works because if you don't endure to the end, you are not saved. Well, if you understand that difficult passage in the light of the much simpler and more clear passages, if you are truly saved, you will not have a choice but to endure to the end. It is because of your relationship with Christ, because of the salvation you possess, that you can endure to the end, not that your salvation depends upon your enduring to the end, because if it did, then the final authority and trust for your salvation would have to be in you and not in the Lord Jesus Christ. We still together? So... We, we set these rules up here and we want to put the emphasis on understanding those portions of the Bible that will help us live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Does knowing the identity of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, is that going to help you live for Jesus Christ? Somebody said, well, who are they? They're the sons of God. We're not going to worry. And we're not going to sit here and chase after that identification. They were people who belonged to God that were doing wicked things. That's as simple and as easy as you need to go. Don't go any further. Don't try to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I don't even know where that question came from or why it's there. But honestly, you can find it in theological textbooks. That's why we don't spend a lot of time here in theological textbooks. We want to put our emphasis on the understanding of the Scripture that is going to help us serve God. If it doesn't change the way you live tomorrow, let's let God take care of the understanding of that passage and start working on the ones that do. I don't know about you, but I believe when I look in this book called the Bible... I'll tell you what happens. I am convicted of things that need to be changed in my life. How about you? Well, let's work on the things that need to be changed and let all that interesting data out there just be 
out there, not in here. There's a preacher who wrote an entire book on how Adam and Eve got blood by eating grapes. You say, where in the world did he get that? I don't know. But he wrote a whole book on it. And I'm not going to tell you who he is because I don't want you going out and buying the book and trying to read it because that is the absolute opposite of what we're talking about doing because it doesn't make any difference in how I live today or tomorrow to have that bit of information. What I want is information that's going to help me live until Jesus comes back. And the last part, and and this is something we stress often, is each passage of Scripture must be understood in its grammatical context surrounding verses, its historical and cultural context, that is, What the words mean when they were written was like the little boy that uh, drew the picture of, uh, uh, it was Christmas time and they were drawing pictures and he had a nice big airplane on his picture and uh, three little people looking out the back windows and and, uh, then uh, somebody up in the front of the plane looking out and the teacher said, Johnny, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? He says, oh, this is a picture of the flight into Egypt. He said, and see, there's Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Well, who's flying the plane? He said, Pontius. He was the pilot, right? Now, I think somebody made that up. I don't know a little child that would be willfully able to take all of that out of context in one picture. But people do things just as silly when they read their Bible and tried to make it say things the Scripture never intended it to say. That's what we mean by the historical setting. And the biblical context, we've already gone over that, that Scripture as a whole. So, let's in our last few minutes here, apply some of these things. First mention, turn with me to Genesis chapter 20 and verse 7. Strange story, a strange place for this to be mentioned, but the first time the word prophet, prophecy, prophesy is used in your Bible is here in the book of Genesis. And I believe we can learn some things about this idea of prophecy and it will put into context for us as we look at understanding prophecy in the Scripture as a whole. Verse 7, let me just set the context. Abraham is journeying uh, out of the land of Canaan. And there was a famine in the land. And uh, he is living with the Phoenicians for a while, the Philistines, uh, who became the Philistines. And he went into the land and they said, Who is this beautiful woman that is by your side? And Abraham goes, Go. If I say she's my wife, they might kill me so they can steal my wife. So I'll say she's my sister. He lied. And does God ever bless a lie? Absolutely not. But down to verse 7, God appears to Abimelech, and he says in verse 6, we'll get the context here, Yea, I know that thou didst this, thing, didst this in the integrity of thine heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Verse 7, Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if, they, if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Now, that is the first mention of the word prophet. And I was reading in one of the books, and it said, the first mention of the word prophet bears no understanding on the word prophet. I said, whoa, wait a minute. The life of Abraham does not tell us what a prophet is? Number one, prophet is a man, not some sinlessly perfect, strange individual. 
Amen? We have to understand that God used men to bring His message to earth. You cannot tune in to God by going out and hugging trees and feeling the vibes of nature. If you want to know God, you've got to read the words of His prophets. And His prophets are men, and they're not perfect. They do not have to be perfect men to bring God's perfect message. And that gives you and I hope that we can be used of God. Amen? Abraham was a man who spoke and had a connection with God. Abraham was a man who got his direction from God. God told him to arise and leave the land of your nativity and seek a city for which I will tell you a prophet was a man whose life was lived in obedience to the word of God. God had given Abraham a promise. He said, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we understand that that promise was ultimately fulfilled in his seed, his descendant, who was Jesus, God in the flesh. But Abraham's descendants also gave us this book called the Bible. This is a Jewish book. There's a lot more Old Testament than there is New Testament. And by the way, there's no evidence that any of the New Testament writers were not Jewish in their heritage. Anybody that would tell you that is contradicting, is arguing from silence. And an argument from silence is the weakest of all arguments. And so, we look here in the Scriptures and we find Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 says, In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. By the way, in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 14, the story of Abraham taking Isaac up onto Mount Moriah. Does anybody else know? remember the other name for Mount Moriah? In the book of Psalms, it's called Zion. In most of the Bible, it's called Jerusalem. In modern day, it's called the Temple Mount. That's where Abraham took Isaac and offered him as a sacrifice, and God stopped him from laying his hand on his son and provided a substitute. But Abraham foretold of something that he could not see with his physical eyes, a message that he had gotten directly from God. In verse 14, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. And let me tell you, one day it was seen. As they took the Son of God and nailed Him to a cross and suspended Him between heaven and earth. On a ridge that attached to that very same mountain. Not very far from the very same place. Where Abraham offered Isaac. You see, he was giving something, a vision, of what could not be seen. How would we understand that it would be God's Son that would die in our place, except for the story of Abraham and Isaac? That Abraham, God's prophet, took his son to offer him. God provided a substitute for Abraham because Isaac was a man. God provided no substitute for Jesus because He is God. Are we learning anything about prophets and prophecy? You say, but pastor, this is simple. Uh, that's the beauty of understanding the Scripture is it truly is simple. It's not a complicated procedure. 
The first time God mentions the word prophet, he tells us Abraham is a prophet. Abraham talked to God. Abraham had a message for the world. Abraham was a man. He wasn't perfect. But his message and his vision was. Amen? Now, take in your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy 13. Another thing about prophecy that we need to understand. If we're going to understand Bible prophecy, we take these rules and we apply them. We're going to go through the Bible. We're going to chase this idea of a prophet a little bit through the Scripture in the next few moments. Chapter 13 and verse 1 says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It says, if a man come up and say he's a prophet, and he tells you to contradict the words of God's law, no matter what sign or miracle he gives you to prove that he's a prophet, you don't pay any attention to it because he's already violated the first rule of prophecy. He has asked you to contradict Scripture. Does that sound like that thing we were talking about, the Bible will always define the Bible and the Bible doesn't contradict the Bible? And that's where we build these things from. It's not just an arbitrary set of rules that I looked up in some book and copied out before church tonight. These are things that are actually built upon the Scripture and, and I could give you literally hundreds of verses for each one of these things that we've talked about. Later on in here, it says that if a man prophesies and his prophecy doesn't come to pass, he says a certain sign or a wonder, it says that man is to lose his life because he prophesied falsely in the name of God. Verse 18, it says, of chapter 18, verse 22, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass... That is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but that prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. In fact, you read on, it says the penalty is death for speaking falsely in the name of God. When God has prophecy, it's going to be fulfilled God's way in God's time. And it will be fulfilled exactly. Some prophecies are very easy. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. The wise men show up. They want to talk to Herod. They want to know where Jesus is born. Verse 4, they get the chief priest and the scribes and the people together, and their answer is without hesitation. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now that's pretty simple. In fact, that's quoted out of the book of Micah. And it simply says that out of Bethlehem is going to be the man born that's going to rule the people of Israel. How many of you remember what happened when the wise men left? And went another way without telling Herod. Herod sent and murdered all the children two years old and younger in the city of Bethlehem. Now I want to illustrate that not all prophecy is clearly, easily understood. Let the Bible tell you what it means. Look with me in verse 2, in chapter 2, let's go down to verse 18, or 17 actually. It says, Then was fulfilled that which spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted, because they are not. 
Now, the writer of Matthew is telling us that this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. And just in case you're wondering, the difference between Jeremiah and Jeremy is the difference between Hebrew and Greek. And our translators were honest enough and careful enough to translate that when they put those words into uh, from one language into another that they took that word that was there and brought it into the English language rather than just uh, changing the name altogether. Names change in different languages over periods of time. And so I don't think anybody here would have a really difficult time equating Jeremy with Jeremiah. And yet the integrity of the text is intact. Now, Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's go down to oh, verse 11. It says, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for the wheat and for the wine and for the oil, and for the young of the flock, and of the herd, and their souls shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of, pri of the priest with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes for tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. If you did not have Matthew telling you that verse applied to that passage... Would any one of us in this room ever make that connection? Don't think so. The reason I bring this up is because I want us to understand something about prophecy. God doesn't intend all prophecy just to be laying there clearly understood. Some of it is in there a little deeper than we can find out. But if you want to know... Don't call Benny Hinn. Don't call the Psychic Hotline. Don't get the book, uh, The Hidden Bible, or whatever that thing was. Let the Bible tell you where the hidden prophecies are. And if the Bible doesn't tell you where they are, don't worry about them. Amen? Amen? A lot of people get into a lot of trouble when they try to figure out things that God doesn't explain in the scriptures. That's the reason the Calvinist is a heretic, is he explains things that God never intended to explain. Is there a relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Oh, you better believe there is. But that Discussion is best left to the character of God rather than our little minds trying to figure it out. You take care of what God has given you to take care of and let God take care of what he will already take care of. Amen? And I had one of those guys tell me one time, he says, when you get to heaven, you'll find out, he says, on one side of the door, whosoever will on the other side of the door, when you get inside and look back, it'll say, predestined from the foundation of the universe. I said, no, sir, my... Friend, I have both verses on this side of the door. It's just I'm not trying to make a complete synthesis of those. I'll let God tell me what they mean. And so, as we look at prophecy, not all prophecy is plain. But if God wants you to understand it, He will make it plain in Scripture. Amen? There is much prophecy that is plain. And it's easy to find. It's easy to trace through the scriptures. And God wants us to do that. A prophet 
is going to be 100% accurate. How many people old enough to remember Jean Dixon? Her claim to fame was that she foretold the Kennedy assassination. That was four hours more. They said that she was right somewhere between 5 and 12% of the time. So in a hundred prophecies, at her best, she would give 12 of them correct. God says, my prophets are 100% correct. There's a little difference between God's prophecy and man's prophecy. Amen? Prophets are human beings. They don't have to be perfect to give God's perfect message. And God's prophecy will draw us closer to God and allow us to live more for Him. That's why we studied the book of Revelation. That's why God tells us, Blessed is the man that readeth and heareth and keepeth. All God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. And Lord, we ask that in the next few weeks as we began this study of prophecy and of things yet to come, that you would guide our study, that we would be very careful not to give excessive time to things that we cannot know, but Lord, to put an emphasis on those things that we should do in obedience to the words of your prophecy. Help us to be careful not to add to or to try to take anything away from, but to simply hear and keep and prepare ourselves for your coming. We ask, Lord, that you would work, that we may learn more about you and more about how we ought to live for you in these last days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And before we...